Amen. Amen. Well, thank you uh, so much for being here again today. Thanks for being the church. Uh, thank you for bringing it in this uh, wonderful, wonderful day. Uh, today is Easter Sunday. And for the past 2,000 years, there has been a greeting that people would use in order to greet one another. Uh, one person would call to the uh, other and they would say, Christ is risen. And then the response of the people would be, he is risen indeed. So can we try that? I'm going to say it and then you can respond. Uh, Christ is risen. Okay, let's try that one more time. We're practicing here. This is the real deal. Christ is risen. Okay, we, uh, I, I said at the morning service, we had a service at 8.30, and it was about as loud as this, and I said, I think we're still shaking the cobwebs off, uh, but I think here at 10.54 in the morning, we're able to do a little bit better. Let's do this again. Christ is risen. Amen, amen. I know as you hear this, um, there's probably a couple different uh, thoughts that go through your mind. Uh, on one hand, if... It's really true that Christ is risen and that he's risen indeed, then this is the greatest message in history. It's the greatest day in history. It's the greatest event in history, and everything because of it is changed. If this is really true, that Jesus Christ, a dead man, was seen walking in victory over death. If it's really true, then everything is different. Today's either the greatest day in history or it's the greatest hoax in history. Because if it's not true, then billions of people throughout the world today are deluded into thinking that what they think is true is actually not, and billions of people throughout history who have staked their lives on this day would, found themselves, would find themselves to be, to be a, 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 of all people, to be pitied. That's what it says in 1 Corinthians 15. If today is really true, then it's the greatest day in history, and it changes everything if it's not true, then it's the greatest hoax that the world has ever known. You think about this for a second. What is it that we're coming to celebrate today as the people of God? And why is it that we celebrate every Sunday? It goes back to what happened, the events outside of Jerusalem 2,000 years ago. And what the biographies of Jesus said was that he was crucified on Friday, he was buried, and then on Sunday morning, his followers went to the tomb and saw that the tomb was empty, and they saw Jesus resurrected in power with their own eyes. They saw him, they ate with him, they touched him. It's like today saying, hey, you know what? One of our buddies died on Friday. We went to his funeral on Friday night. On Saturday, we were grieving, we were mourning, and then on Sunday, we saw him at the Winter Garden Village, and we're eating with him at Panera, or at Chipotle. That's crazy. And it's not just like a few people, but over the next month and a half, all these people that you know said that they saw him. Either this is the greatest day in history or it's the greatest hoax that mankind could ever make up. And the question is, which one is it? Because I'm sure there are people who sit on both sides of the spectrum and everywhere in between when it comes to, did this really happen? Because I've never seen a dead person get up and walk, have you? I don't think we've seen it. And because we haven't seen it, it causes us to say, well, I don't think that could really be true. The burden of proof is on you to show that a man could rise from the dead. This morning, what I want to say is I want to agree with other historians who take the opposite bent, who would say, actually, the burden of proof is not on us to prove that this happened anymore, but the burden of proof would be on the other side of the aisle to show us if it did not happen, then why did human history play out the way that it did? Why was it that movements like this happen all the time, where guys would rise up and say, listen, I'm going to bring in the kingdom, I'm going to bring in the kingdom, I'm going to bring in the kingdom, and then when that leader would die, so too would the movement. 
But this one was different. With this one, Jesus, the leader of this movement, he said, I'm going to bring in the kingdom. When he died, the movement faltered for a few days. His disciples went into hiding. In fact, there were 12 of them, but one of them ended up killing himself because he was so grief-struck that he didn't think Jesus was who he thought he was. 11 people who are locked up in hiding, and yet the movement didn't die. Instead, it did the opposite. It blossomed, and it flourished, and it blew up, and it overtook the Roman empire, and today it's become the most dominant religion in the world. Either two billion people plus are deluded by the greatest hoax in history, or something happened that day that changed everything forever. Changed everything forever. Remember in the 1970s when Nixon was president, there was a scandal called Watergate, and 12 of the most powerful men in the country could not hold a lie for more than a week, and they spent the rest of their, their or they spent time in prison because of that. Here you've got 11 of the weakest, most fearful people standing up, and if they were to believe in a lie, then here's the reality. They spent the next 10, 15, 20, 30, 40, 50 years living out a lie and ultimately dying for what they believed. If, you're, if, if, if we're all fabricating this story and it's a lie and we know it to be a lie, at what point do we say, you know what, I was just kidding. In fact, we were wrong. We were mistaken. It was just a hallucination. It was a vision. At what point do you do that? Certainly when the, the sword is to your throat, <laughs> that's when you would give up that lie, wouldn't you? But instead they went to the grave for it. What happened? Because from the events of that first Easter Sunday, the church of Christ was born, and the world has not been the same since then. If the story of the resurrection, which I believe and which many of us believe to be the true story of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, was made up, was fabricated in some way, then you have to think that the gospel writers who wrote the biographies of Jesus, who lived with him, who knew him, who, who, who breathed the same breath and ate the same food that he did, then certainly they would have included certain things in the story to make it more believable. But there are certain things about the resurrection accounts that don't seem to line up if you are making this up and trying to get people to believe it. One of the first things is in the midst of the Roman culture, in the Roman culture, in the midst of the Jewish culture, in both Jewish and Roman culture and jurisprudence, when it comes to law, a woman's testimony is not valid in a court of law. So if you had a trial, if a bunch of women saw somebody do something and they were to testify in court, their testimony would not be valid in Rome and in Jewish culture because they just believed women were not reliable witnesses. That testimony would be thrown out over and against any evidence supporting what they said. But in the four gospel accounts, the four biographies of Jesus by people who lived with him and saw what had happened, the first witnesses to the resurrection of Jesus were women, not just one or two, but a handful of women. If you were to try and make up this story and pass it off as fact, the last thing that you would want to do is put in there as eyewitnesses those whose witnesses didn't matter in the culture to which you're writing. Why did the gospel writers then say that it was Mary and another Mary and these different women who were the first people at the tomb on the first Easter Sunday? Why did they say that? Because they weren't trying to fabricate a story that would start a movement that would take over the earth. What they were doing was they were merely reporting what they had seen and what they had heard. There are countless things like this that don't quite make sense if you are making up a story 
of how things happened with the resurrection of Jesus. And what I want to do today is I want to talk about one of these things. I'm going to talk about one of the key details that are written by John, who was the beloved disciple, one of the most, he was probably the closest disciple to Jesus. And as he lived with Jesus for three and a half years, and then he gave his life testifying to the reality of who Jesus is. I'm going to read what it says in John chapter 20. We're going to read verses 19 and 20, and then we're going to read verses 24 to 28. And as we read this, this is talking about, uh, John is writing about the first Easter Sunday and the events that happened there that evening. And included in there are some little details that I think form a story and a message that is really important for us to understand, especially here in the midst of 2021, especially in the midst of a pandemic that has taken so much from us. There's a message that's often overlooked here. This is John chapter 20. We're going to read verses 19 and 20 and then 24 to 28. This is God's Word. It says, On the evening of that first day of the week, Sunday, Easter Sunday, on the evening of that first Easter Sunday, that evening when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and sighed. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. And then verse 24 Now Thomas, this is the one we know as Doubting Thomas, also called Didymus, one of the 12 was not with the disciples when Jesus came that first Easter. The other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands, put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe it. A week later, his disciples were in the house again and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, my Lord and my God. This is God's word. As we think about this, this is Jesus once crucified, buried, rose again on Easter Sunday, that evening in his resurrected body, his perfected body, a body that is unlike what it was before and yet at the same time similar to what it was before, but perfected in all of its glory. There's something very interesting that we notice about Jesus. When you think about, you think about, you dream about your resurrected body, you think about what you're going to be like in heaven where there's no pain, no, 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 no any of those things, sickness, death, when you're free from all of the encumbrances of this fallen world, when you're there in heaven, you think about your resurrected body, what do you dream of? What do you think about? What is it that you envision your body to be like? Most of us would say, well, um, I would lose my gut, definitely. I would have less of that. I would have more hair. I would probably be able to dunk a basketball. I'd probably be able to run faster than my little brother who always beats me. All of these things are the things that we think about, things that would revel in our glory. But when you think about the description of Jesus, the one thing that it says about Jesus, and they make pains to say it three times, one thing that marks the resurrected body of Jesus that doesn't seem to quite make sense is that he still has scars from the crucifixion on Good Friday. Why would the resurrected, perfected body of Jesus not have erased the marks that show the cause of death? 
Could not the power of God that raised his son from the dead, could not the power of God have erased the scars from the darkest day in Jesus' life? From the darkest day in human history, could not God have erased those things? Well, maybe the better question is, if he could have, why did he not? What I want to present to us this morning is that there's a message in the scars of Jesus that are so absolutely vital to our understanding of Jesus' life, his mission, and who he is, and what he says about the future and about our lives. There's a message in the scars that we desperately need to hear in the midst of a world that has been broken beyond measure through this past year. It's not only COVID, it's not only the financial impact of that, it's not only having to wear masks all the time and be socially distanced, it's other things that have happened that have caused us grief beyond measure. What is the message of the scars that Jesus brings to us this morning? There are three things that I want to point out here. Here's the first thing. What do the scars of Jesus tell us? What do scars tell us? Tells us first that our world is broken. This world is broken. I don't think I need to remind you of it. But all of us probably have scars somewhere on us. Because every scar tells a story. And every scar probably will remind us of a day that is very difficult for us to forget. This would be maybe a fun thing for you to do at lunch today or as you're hanging out and taking pictures. You can say to one another, hey, where are your scars? What are some of the scars that you have? And tell me the story of your scars. My wife, Olivia, she's got a scar. If you look closely at her face, which I often do, if you look closely at her face, you'll notice there are some freckles there, and nestled amongst the freckles is a scar. And if you ask her to tell you, where did that scar come from, she'll tell you. Happened when she was in college, James Madison University in Harrisonburg, Virginia. She played football in college. Did you know that? <laughs> it was intramural, co-ed, flag football, but she still played football. She was really good. She was like the best one on her team. And so this one day, she was playing in this game, and the quarterback threw her the ball, and she caught it, and she turned right at the goal line in order to jump into the end zone. And there was this big, tall dude standing to block her way. And as soon as she turned around, she collided with his tooth, and it embedded in her cheek. Blood started coming out, gore, all of this nastiness came out. Five stitches later, she asked a question, did I catch the ball? I'm just she didn't say that. But she did, and she scored a touchdown. Glory to God. Go, Olive. Yeah. Scoring a touchdown. But that's the story of her scars. Every one of us has scars, and every scar tells a story. I have a little scar on my knee from about 20 years ago when I first moved down here to Orlando, excited, coming to the land of Disney, the happiest place on earth, the city beautiful. I had my mind made up about what life here would be look like. It would be glory, and it would be amazing, and everything would be great. And about a week into my life here in Orlando, I got bit by something, and my knee started swelling up. It was like a little bit big at the time, and then it started pussing, and then it started having like a bullseye shape, and it was hardening on the inside of the bullseye. And I Googled it. I said, what the heck is this? And they said, it might be an infected spider bite. And so as I thought, well, I can deal with it, I just squeezed the pus out of it and deal with it. But every morning as I woke up, my knee got more and more swollen, to the point where it became a little bit difficult to walk. And so without having real insurance outside the one that my seminary provided, I went to the CVS Minute Clinic, 
and I was standing in line, and this guy comes out. He must have been, looked like 18 years old, 19 years old, didn't look like uh, any older than any of our youth students. And he said, can I help you? And I looked at him, and I was like, I'm not sure if you can help me, but I said, look at this. <laughs> and I showed him my knee, which was all pussing out and, and swollen. And he's like, oh, my gosh, what is that? He's like, that's a... And then he looked at it, he's like, that's definitely a brown recluse spider bite. You got to get that thing taken care of, or you're going to lose your leg. I was like, dude, chill out, man. And so I went up to the counter and I said, can you tell me what's going on here? And they said, you probably got a spider bite. We're going to give you some antibiotics. It'll be good after a few days. And so 10 days later, the swelling started going down after getting these antibiotics. And within about, yeah, within about seven to 10 days, I was good to go again. But there's still a scar that reminds me of what I thought life was going to be like and what it actually was. The scars are a reminder that this world is broken. I don't think you need a reminder of it. We all know that this place is broken. You've got scars too, don't you? Maybe scars from when you fell off the bike. Maybe it was innocent. Maybe somebody pushed you off the bike. Maybe it was a scar from a fight that you had at school or a fight in a bar. Maybe uh, you've got marks from a car accident when a person who was texting and driving or drunk while driving or under the influence of something ran into you and there were scars on your body that tell you of a day that you can't forget. The message of the scars is that this world is broken and how we need to know that. There's a God who understands. In his resurrected, perfected body, three times Jesus comes out in the Gospel of John and says, there are scars in my hands and in my side. If you see them, you'll see a message and you'll hear what I've been trying to communicate about who I am and why I came and who I've saved you to be. There's a message in the scars. The scars tell you what you already know. This world is broken beyond measure. But why are they still on the hands and side of Jesus? Because he wants you to know that no matter what you've been through, that you have a God who has scars and he understands the brokenness of this world. Jesus, you understand, Jesus didn't have to come into this world. You didn't want heaven without us, so Jesus, you brought heaven down. He was in glory, the only place in this world free from scars. That was Jesus. But he willingly entered into this world. You think he knows what it is to have scars? Your scars may not be on the outside. They may be on the inside. You might think, I got no, nothing to show anybody, but you've got scars on the inside, don't you? I do. You do. We all do. And the scars are the reason why we do some of the things that we do. It's that young adult man who seems so mature. He does so well at work, so sophisticated, so well-educated, and yet whenever he's in a room and someone starts raising his voice, he can't be there. He starts sweating, he gets anxious, gets nervous, and he runs out of the room. Why? Because he can't bear to think back because it reminds him of the time when he was alone with his dad and his dad was screaming at him. We've all got scars, don't we? We live out of these scars. It's the young girl, it's the teenager who goes in and out of relationships who can't stay out of one and who will do whatever she can in order that that boy who's now her boyfriend will not leave her because she fears the abandonment that she felt when her parents were divorced and she thought that it was her fault. We all have scars in this world that's broken, whether they're on the inside or on the outside. And what Jesus is saying is, I know what it is to be scarred. 
I know what it is to be beaten. I know what it is to be humiliated. I know what it is to be made fun of because of my family, because of my parents, to be born for the moment of my birth, to be made fun of because my mother and my daddy were not married when I was conceived. Jesus understands. Yours is a God who has scars on his body to bear the marks of this fallen world to let you know that he understands. Jesus didn't have to come into a world that way. He could have isolated himself and insulated himself from the brokenness of this world, but he didn't. He came. He came for the broken. He came to the broken. And most importantly, he came to be broken. And that's why he's got scars. The first thing that his scars tell us is that Jesus knows what you and I know, that this world is broken. But the second thing that we see, what do his scars tell us? Why do the scars remain even after the resurrection? His scars tell us that you are loved beyond measure. You're loved beyond reason. You're loved beyond explanation. Why would Jesus do this? The crazy thing is when they're saying, oh, Jesus, look at, look at Jesus. He says, after he had said this, he showed them his hands inside. They saw this. They were overjoyed, and they knew that it was the Lord. And then you jump down again. Thomas says, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were, my hand into his side, I won't believe it. Jesus says, all right, Thomas, do that, do that. Put your finger there. See it, see it. Touch my hands. Put your finger into my side. See and believe. See, Jesus was identified by Thomas not because of his glory, but he was identified because of his scars. How do you know? Well, scars identify people today. If you didn't know who Olivia was, if you were to look and stop every person and stare at their face, if they didn't have freckles, you'd say, no. If they had freckles, you would look for a little scar, and then you would say, that's her. We're identified today in often, often, uh, we're identified by our scars. Jesus was identified by scars as well. If you ask Jesus, Jesus, why are your hands like that? Like, wh- why do you have that gash in your side if Jesus were to show up and go with you to the beach? Like, you're hanging out wherever it is, hanging out at the beach, and <clears throat> Jesus going surfing, whatever it is that he does, and you're like, man, w- w- what are the story of your scars? And he would tell you a story of a love beyond reason. Jesus, did, did, did you, you were a carpenter? Did you accidentally nail the nails in the wrong place? What happened? Jesus, did somebody do that to you? I can't imagine somebody would, would, would do that to you. Why, why did that happen? The reason Jesus came into this broken world was because he loved you and because he loved me and forever the scars will remain, and the message of the scars is that for all eternity, when this heaven and this earth passes away, his scars will still remain, and forever they will say, just how much you love me. The scars were for you, and the scars were for me. Jesus came into this world because he did for us what we could not do on our own. Guys, every one of us is going to face our mortality at some point in time. We're going to come face to face with it. Maybe it's going to be in a, in a note from the doctor, a call from the doctor, an invitation from the doctor to come and talk. Maybe it's going to be as you stand in front of the casket, the closed or open casket of somebody that you love. But all of us are going to be confronted with our mortality. And then we're going to need to ask questions of what happens after that. 
the Bible tells us that we are all destined to die one time, and after that we'll stand before our God in heaven, the great and final judge. Why did Jesus come? Why did Jesus come? Because we all understand the idea of a scapegoat, don't we? Many of us in here who are Asian Americans understand what it is to be a scapegoat in this time. COVID-19, what do you do? When do you need a scapegoat? It's when you cannot do anything more than what you've already done. When you don't know what to do and you want somebody to blame, you find a scapegoat. And so you say COVID was the result of this group of people or that group of people. We understand what that's like. You understand what that's like. You don't have to be Asian to understand that. African Americans have dealt with that for the longest time. All of us in some way have been scapegoated. We understand that where somebody pays the price for another. And this is what Jesus came to do, to live the life that you and I failed to live and to die a death that we should have died. That's what Jesus did. Sometimes the scars that we bear were born for the sake of another. A few weeks ago, one of my friends um, back home in Virginia went home to be with the Lord. She was a friend, absolutely, but she was the wife of my best friend in whose wedding I stood as the best man, and he was my best man along with my brother. She went home after a several-month bout with a late-stage cancer that was diagnosed pretty late in the ballgame. By the time they caught it, they said, you've got to be ready to say your goodbyes. It's a matter of months if you're fortunate, a couple years maybe. And so she went through, immediately went through a very aggressive kind of chemotherapy. Um, the cancer had spread in, in, in a bunch of different parts of her body. And so uh, they went through chemo and they would measure and there were moments of hope and there were moments of despair and moments of hope and moments of despair, but she knew the Lord. She loved the Lord. She had gave, given her life to the Lord many years ago and committed to follow Jesus so the days of her life. And so there was no fear of death. Death was not the final enemy for her. It was merely a doorway into everything that she imagined Jesus to be. And this world, which is so broken, should have been. But she went through chemo, multiple phases of it. And after the chemo didn't work, they said, there's nothing more we can do, but you can try some clinical trials, the side effects for which could lead to some pretty serious pain and suffering. What do you do? She knew she was going to heaven. She knew she knew Jesus. She said, I want to do the clinical trial. I don't know what it's going to do to my body, but I want to do it. Sometimes the pain in her lungs would be so difficult that she couldn't make it from her bedroom to her kitchen without having to stop and sit on the sofa because she couldn't breathe. And yet she went through that trial. The side effects brought nausea, lack of sleep. She couldn't sleep for more than an hour without having to roll over because of the pain. And she continued to do it. And then they did a scan and they said, you know what, it's shrinking, but the rest of you is too weak to do anything more. They said, uh, it's best for you to just go home and maybe spend the last two or three weeks with your loved ones um, and not have to endure all of this pain for the last couple weeks of your life. Obviously, it's, you know, difficult news for the family to hear. And as my friend heard that and as his two sons uh, young boys, uh, adolescent boys, 13-year-old boys heard that. Um, obviously, a lot of tears and a lot of, a lot of fears, concerns. But the whole time, Sarah was never afraid to die. 
And as they got home and as Sarah saw her sons and her husband and her parents and the emotions that they felt, she said, you know what, I'm gonna, I want to give it another shot. I want to give another shot to do this clinical trial. It might be the end of my body, but I want to I give it another shot. So on a Monday morning, they were scheduled to go back in, but that Saturday night, Sunday night before, uh, she had to go to the emergency room because she couldn't breathe. So they took her into the emergency room. She was uh, taken into intensive care and basically being kept alive on a ventilator in order that she might be able to see her family uh, come to the hospital so that they might say uh, their farewells and bring her home for the last few days. And as my friend was uh, caring for his wife in a darkened room with sounds of beeping that nobody wants to hear, as he's washing her body and he's looking at her, this woman, fearless in the face of death, ready to be with her Savior, he saw that her body had just been beaten up by drugs, by chemo, bruises, bloating, swelling, cuts all over. He saw the places in which, where needles had poked her body. He saw the scars. And he said, this is, this is too much. He said, Sarah knew that she was going to heaven. Why did she do this? Why did she endure? Why did she go through all this suffering? And he knew. He knew that she was only doing it for him. She was doing it for her boys. She was doing it for her parents. She was doing it for them so that they could have a little bit more time with her. She was ready to go. And when he said that, he said, this is, this is too much. So he called his boys in, and he told them what's going on. And his 13-year-old twin boys, Jackson and Owen, looked at Mom, and they said, Mom, you don't need to prolong this anymore. And we know what you've done. We know you've done your best. <laughs> and then the 13-year-old said to his mom, he said, I'm, I'll, don't worry about Owen. I'll take care of Owen, as the older twin does. I'll take care of your, my brother. Don't worry about him. A couple of days later, she entered into her final rest. But the boys and their daddy will never fail to remember the story of the scars that show how much their mom loved them. It's a love beyond reason. And the Bible tells us that you have been loved in that way. That you have a God. God, the maker of all of this, who's scarred for you and for me. So that you know that in his darkest day, he didn't give up on you. In his most painful day, he didn't give up on you. In the depth of the brokenness of this world, he did not give up on you. Every nail, every thought, every ounce of suffering Perhaps you and I were on the mind of our Savior. The message of the scars is not only in this, is this world broken, but Jesus came to be broken for you. The second message of the scars is that you are loved beyond reason. Why? Why would he love us, though? What, what is the effect of all that? The last thing, the message of the scars of Jesus tell us, 
is that your healing is coming. My friends, whatever the capacity of this world to break you, to hurt you, to destroy you, the capacity of Jesus and the gospel to heal you is infinitely greater. The message of the scars is that the worst day in history could become the greatest day in history. And the weekend that changed the world can change your life as well. This is what Jesus and his scars are telling us. You remember when we fell off that bike, when we got hurt, they weren't scars on our body. They were wounds which bled, which hurt, which were painful. But when those wounds begin to heal, they become scars that tell us of a day that we may not forget, but whose pain no longer is felt every time we touch that scar. Jesus, the one marked by scars, is telling us that just as it was for me, so it is with you if you believe in Jesus, that your healing too is coming. If not in this life, then it will come in the life to come. See, Jesus, when it talks about how he was crucified and he was dead and he was buried and he rose again from the dead, another line that is often added in right after that, it says, just as it was written or just as he had said. In other words, the resurrection was a giant exclamation point on the word of God saying, your God can be trusted and taken at his word. In fact, Jesus' coming wasn't just something that he talked about a little bit before he was going to die. Hundreds of years before Jesus ever came into the world, there was a prophet whose name was Isaiah, and in his writings, he gave this prophecy about Jesus in Isaiah 53, verse 5. It says, Surely he took up our infirmities, and carried our sorrows. Yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him and afflicted, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and this is what it says, and by his wounds we are healed. That's the promise of Jesus, the promise of the Savior, the promise of Easter is that one day your healing too is coming and it comes, flows through the wounds of Jesus into our lives, whatever those wounds might be. I don't know if you remember um, that great trilogy, The Lord of the Rings by J.R. Tolkien, that great Christian author who was writing, he wrote a lot of uh, folklore, fairy tale, fables, fantasy, and when he, he was also a lecturer at Oxford University, and the reason as he was writing this, these fantasy writings, some of the higher ups in literature at Oxford uh, would poo-poo on him and say, I can't believe that people are actually buying this kind of fantasy and are reading it and are watching shows about it, and, and they just look down on him on being anti-intellectual, but they wondered why people ate up this writing so much. And he went on to say, as he would lecture on it, he said there are five things that we long for as human beings. We long, we long to be free from time and space. 
We long to communicate with those who are non-humans. We long for a love that will last forever. We long for, uh, this, uh, for, for, for this world to be uh, done away with and made right, and we long for that which is wrong to be fixed and for there to be a happy ending. Since the reason why we long for those things in fantasy is because we don't see them in reality in life. Love always ends up dying. We can't communicate with the ethereal, with the other world. We can't. And the reason why, he says, is because we live in a world that is broken. And then he writes the Lord of the Rings as an example to illustrate the gospel of Jesus Christ. And in it, there's this, there's this, this little dude named Frodo who's on this mission. And I haven't read the, the, I haven't read the books. I've uh, barely seen the movies. But I recall hearing this on multiple occasions. And in the first book, their guide, their leader, who's leading them on this mission, Gandalf, in a battle, falls off of a mountain or a cliff or something, and then he dies. And all of a sudden, it's like hope is gone. We're on this mission, and it's like this, this, this tug of war. We're constantly struggling to destroy the ring, but constantly being sucked back into it. And, and as they're going, at the pivotal moment in the final book of the Lord of the Rings, as Sam is helping his friend Frodo to accomplish the mission in the time when they needed him the most, Gandalf the Wise reappears. And in these beautiful words, Sam looks at Gandalf, and he says, Gandalf! I thought you were dead. Then he says, I thought I was dead too. And then what he says next is, does this mean that everything sad will come untrue? 2,000 years ago, the disciples and the women at the tomb who followed Jesus and loved him thought that Jesus was dead. But on Sunday morning when they needed him the most, Jesus came as a sign, as a staple, as a message bearer to say that everything sad will come untrue. In this life, we know, Spurgeon says, we face bereavement after bereavement, sorrow after sorrow, brokenness after brokenness, pain after pain, but we are going to the land of the immortal where graves do not exist. That's our hope and that's our destiny and our future changes the way that we live here on earth with hope, with confidence, with boldness. And the invitation of Jesus today, wherever you are, is to come and see, to come and see again. Some of you haven't been to church in a long time. Some of you haven't been to church ever. Some of you are at church, and you've been coming to church your whole life, but your hearts are far from the message of the resurrection. You've got scars, and your life is living out of those wounds which have yet to be healed. Jesus is inviting you to come. The reason why you get so angry and you can't control your anger at your friends, the reason why you get so jealous at your, your brother or sister, the reason you can't stop beating your children or whatever it is, way in which that manifests itself is because you've got wounds and you've sat in church maybe, but you haven't allowed Jesus to touch the deepest places of your heart. He says no matter the capacity of this world for brokenness, the capacity of Jesus to heal is infinitely greater. He says, come and see. Like, come and step into that place. Through the pandemic, and this is maybe the last thing that I say before I sit down and give you a chance to respond in your own heart, but throughout the pandemic, there's this one TV show that I've been watching that maybe some of you have been watching. I think it was the number one show on Netflix. Uh, it's a show called Cobra Kai. 
about this like karate dojo. I remember it came out actually a few years ago. It came up on YouTube and nobody watched it. It was like kind of a dumpster fire. And so it, it, got, it got bought out by Netflix. And, and all of a sudden people started watching. It was kind of weird. But I remember one of our harvesters saying to me, hey, have you seen Cobra Kai yet? I was like, no, I haven't seen it. They're like, you should watch it. It's really good, especially if you loved Karate Kid when you were little. You're going to love Cobra Kai. And so I said, all right, let's give it a shot. And so Olive and I, uh, at, at, at night, we sat down and we watched Cobra Kai. After one episode, I was like, dude, what is this? Second episode, like, nah, I don't know. Like third one, after third one, I was like, forget it. This is, this is awful. And so went back, and, and the guy asked me, hey, did you watch Cobra Kai yet? I was like, are you kidding me, man? That thing is garbage. It's like such trash. It's like the dumbest thing ever. It's not funny. The acting is terrible. It's so politically incorrect. Everything is wrong about that show. He's like, how far did you get? I said, about three episodes. He's like, oh, I felt the way after, that same way after three episodes, but you just got to keep on going. Just give it another shot. Give it another shot. So Olivia's like, let's give it another shot. I said, I don't want to give it another This is like dumb. It's terrible. I didn't know, but she was giving it another shot without me. She was watching it in those quiet moments where it's like too quiet. What's going on? She was watching Cobra Kai, and she's like, dude, it's really good. It's really good. You got to come watch it. So I started watching it after the fourth one. I was like, man, this is awful still. But something happened somewhere along the line because enough people started telling me that it was good. I started to think, I don't want to miss out on it. And so even though my initial experiences hadn't been that great, it wasn't everything that I thought it was going to be that everyone else told me it was for them, I started watching it and one episode at a time. One episode at a time, I started realizing, wow, this is not so bad. It's not that bad. I realized that the best is always future tense when it comes to Cobra Kai. And then after one season was done, I was like, I can't wait for the next season to begin and the next season to begin. And now I've watched all of them that are on Netflix. I'm waiting for next year. I can't wait for 2022 because when it comes to Cobra Kai, the best is always yet to come. And this morning, there's an invitation that's been spread to you, not by Cobra Kai, but the invitation is given by the one we sing about, the King of Kings. He extends his hands to you. And as you see them, you notice that there are scars that came from his love for you and it came from his love for me. And he says to you today, hey, no matter what your experiences have been with me or my people before, I'm just asking you to give just one try. Just give it one shot. Just give it one shot. You're here. That's one shot. Maybe as you hear this, maybe something made sense to you. At least maybe it's the fact that this world is broken. You can wrap your mind around that. Can you take that next step? Just take that next step. Maybe for some of you that next step is, man, I've got brokenness in my heart and I've got, I've got pain, I've got hurt, and I need these things to be healed. Maybe your next step is, I'm going to come to Jesus and say, Jesus, if you're real, then can you heal this part of my life? Guys, just because we grow older doesn't mean we grow more healthy. Just because we grow older doesn't mean we grow up. And some of, us, some of us are old in age, but we're young in our emotional maturity because we've got hurt within us that we've allowed to fester and that have not been given over to the one who can heal us, who calls himself the great physician. The invitation held before you today is just to come. You don't need to clean yourself up. You don't need to come with any pretense. Just come just as you are. Come and see. See the scars, see the tomb, see the Jesus. Just take one step to him today. Let's pray together.
as I invite you to pray, I'm inviting you to just do this simple thing. Praying is just talking to God. That's all it is. Just talking to God and telling Him what's in your heart, what's on your mind, what you feel. And as we come to this Easter Sunday service, guys, either this is the biggest hoax in history, but if it's not, then it changes everything. Not only for this world, but he wants to do that for you personally as well. And he invites you today, just take one step towards Jesus today. And if you could do that through prayer, that's awesome. Just saying, Jesus, if you're real, then let something that I've heard begin to make sense. If you're real, maybe for you it's, it's I want to read the Bible. Read the Bible and just examine for myself. Maybe for some of you, I'm going to come to church next week. Hear what they have to say next week. What does that next step look like for you? But I want to say that it's worth it to take a step of faith because if Jesus really is who he said he is and who billions of people throughout the world said he is, if you trust the ones who laid down their lives for this message, then you'll see there's something so much more that he wants to give to you. Come and see. It's the invitation of Jesus. So can we take a minute to pray right now together? It's 30 seconds, just talking to God. And you could even preface it by saying Jesus and start talking to him. Or Jesus, if you're really who you say you are, dot, dot, dot. Let's spend a minute right now just praying like that, can we? Just talking to God on our own. As we um, pray together, I don't know if there's some of us in here who um, have never put our trust in Jesus to be our forgiver, to be our healer, to be our king. If you haven't done that yet, um, I would ask you to come and talk to me after we're done here. I would love to hear your story and share more of the story of Jesus. But for the sake of those in here who may not have done that yet, I'm just going to pray a prayer over all of us. And if you haven't made that confession of faith, I want to invite you to pray this prayer as your own. Just personalize it. As I say it, just say it in your heart as if it's coming from your own. Dear Jesus, thank you that I'm here today to hear this message that you understand that the world is broken and instead of just sitting back and letting it go to ruin, you entered into it. You entered not only into the brokenness, but you let yourself be broken in life as well as in death. And as I think about it, I see that you did that for me. The wounds were for me. 
The death was for me in my stead, in my place. A day that I would never forget. The day that you gave yourself for me. I believe that you did that for me and I trust you to be my forgiver, to be my ticket to heaven and to be the one who guides the way that I live. But Jesus, be those things for me. Help me to live the kind of life you want me to live. I love you because you've loved me first and I pray that you would help me to love you more. So Father, as we pray that prayer, either for the first time or for a time that we cannot even remember how many it's been. We pray that the good news of the death, the life, the death and resurrection of Jesus and his coming return to set all things right would continue to be good to us. May we take one step forward, whatever that might look like for each of us. We thank you so much. We need you. We thank you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.